This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca We're going to continue with the discussion that we had last week about uh, differences between Christianity and Judaism. And last week we touched upon the topics of Satan, the Trinity, and we want to look at tonight a very central issue, a very basic issue, foundational, which is the makeup of the Torah itself. Uh, we've been using the Bible this semester as a really the source book for the course, and we've taken it for granted what Bible, what Torah is. And we're going to see now that one of the major differences between Christianity and Judaism in, is in its understanding of the revelation of God. <clears throat> The basic difference is that according to traditional Jewish teachings, when Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai and heard from God, the entire revelation at Sinai was not um, exhausted in the writing down of the five books of Moses. And the Christian understanding is that the entire revelation of God is included in the five books of Moses, and then is further developed in the books of the prophets. The traditional Jewish understanding is that when the Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai, there was a lot more that God revealed to them than just the five books of Moses. And this is actually a very, very crucial issue because it affects the nature of the data that we're using. If Jews and Christians sit down to the discussion with different sets of data, then that will affect tremendously the outcome of the discussion. And on a certain sense, we've avoided this discussion all semester because we wanted to discuss this question, the questions of Christianity and Judaism on a level playing field. We wanted to discuss Christianity and Judaism based upon texts that we hold in common. Obviously, Christian missionaries do not approach Jews and say, well, you have to believe in Jesus because the New Testament says Jesus was the Messiah. Christians are not about to do that in trying to convert Jews because Jewish people don't begin with an acceptance of the New Testament. It seemed to be a Christian document. In the same way, when Jews dialogue with Christians, it's not really meaningful for us to discount Christianity by claiming that our Talmudic literature or our rabbinic literature discounts Christianity because Christians don't accept it. So in any dialogue, it, it's really it's meaningful to only discuss things that you have in common, where there's common ground. So we have been discussing everything in this semester based upon simply reading the Hebrew Bible. It would have been very simple to say, well, Judaism rejects Jesus because the, the Talmud doesn't accept Jesus, the rabbis don't accept Jesus. But of course, that would really make a very short shrift of the course. Right? So we're going through the material that Christians use to prove their case, which is the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. But we need to get into this difference now that the course is ending because it really it illustrates the radical differences there are between Christianity and Judaism. And again, when Christians claim that we're really basically the same religion, we believe the exact same things, and you could be a good Christian and yet still claim to be a good Jew, it doesn't make sense when we have very, very divergent ideas in terms of what the actual revelation of God is. So... The Christian claim is that there was no oral tradition given. There was no oral transmission 
by God at Mount Sinai. And the Jewish, trans- the Jewish tradition is that God revealed to us many things at Mount Sinai that were not written down in the Bible. So this question of the oral law, whether there's an oral Torah, is it for real? Did it take place at Sinai? Is it something that was added much later on by rabbis? So if we begin on the first page, what I have here are a number of places in the Bible where it becomes very clear that the transmission by God at Sinai, if it was limited simply to the written text, would not be adequate. And the, the basic structure of the argument goes as follows. If you take the Bible seriously, which one of the reasons you see this argument doesn't really necessarily make sense to Christians, is that Christians don't take the Bible seriously. We're going to see later on tonight that Christians don't really believe they need to observe the laws of the Bible. But if you were to take the Bible seriously and try to live by its rules, to try to open the Bible and determine how does God desire for you to live, what are God's, what is God's will in any particular situation, you would quickly see that the Jewish Bible, the written text of the Five Books of Moses is incredibly inadequate, it's very vague, it doesn't really explain itself, and it would be useless as a revelation. Just a few examples. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, the Jewish people are told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise up. These are the words of the Shema. And then the Bible says, And you shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, my proposal here is that if you took people from Mars and brought them down to planet Earth and asked them to try and implement this commandment, they would have no idea what was being required of them. It says that you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand. You bind what as a sign upon your hand? And how do you bind them? And in what manner? When is it done? So a person that was serious about fulfilling the laws of God, a person that was concerned about fulfilling what it says in the Bible, would be stuck. He would have no idea what it means to be frontlets between your eyes. What are frontlets between your eyes? So it's a very, very meaningless term. And our supposition here is that when God gives commandments in the Bible, he's not just being coy or mysterious or being tricky, he's not giving us a Bible, a law, which we have to scratch our heads and not understand, our presumption is that God is going to be clear to us in communicating his will. Leviticus 23. The Bible speaks about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And the Bible says that on this day of Yom Kippur, we have to afflict our souls. Well, how do you afflict your soul? This is the commandment of God. Do you make an appointment with your insurance salesman? Is that afflicting your soul? Do you listen to disco music? Do you begin teaching first grade? I mean, what, do you, what, what is what is the what's the fulfillment of afflicting your soul, right? Do you move to the South Bronx? I mean, it's not clear how you would fulfill this law, and God is giving this. It's a very important law. The Bible goes on in Leviticus 23 and says that the next holiday in the Jewish calendar year is the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Bible says on the 15th day of the seventh month, that we are to take the the bows of goodly trees, take the bow of a goodly tree, pre-eats hadar, the fruit of a beautiful tree. What is the fruit of a beautiful tree? So was it 
up to up for grabs? Did God say you can celebrate this holiday by taking the fruit of your choice? Not likely. Usually, God does not leave things up to our discretion. Deuteronomy chapter 12. If the place which the Lord your God has chosen to put his name there be too far from you, then you shall kill of thy herd and of thy flock, which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you. Here the Bible is speaking about the laws of eating meat, eating kosher meat. And the Bible says here that if we desire to eat kosher meat, to eat meat that's, that's, that is okay to be eaten, we have to slaughter the animal as God commanded us. Now the problem here is very, very clear. If you were to go through the entire written text of the Bible, is there a commandment on how to slaughter meat, how to slaughter an animal? So the answer is no. There's no description in the Bible of how to slaughter an animal. And yet the Bible here refers to, the Hebrew text is even clear, this is a very weak translation, the Hebrew text says, Vezavachta ka'asher tziviticha. You shall slaughter the animal as I have commanded you. So where is the command that God gave us? How were we commanded to slaughter an animal? Do you bash it over the head with a sledgehammer? Do you inject it with poison? Do you cut off its head? Do you throw it down a mountain? How do you kill an animal, right, to be eaten? And here the Bible says specifically that it was a commandment that God gave us. Slaughter the animal as I have commanded you. So where was the command to slaughter animals? Where did God command us in the methodology of slaughtering meat? Numbers chapter 8 describes the building of the menorah in the temple. And this work of the candlestick, which was of beaten gold, unto the shaft thereof, unto the flowers thereof, was beaten work according to the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses. And that's a really strange verse. When you open up your Bible at home, there are no pictures in it. Right? If you open up a, a, a Torah scroll in the synagogue on Shabbat, there are no pictures. So when it says here that God had shown Moses the pattern of how to make the menorah, this candlestick, we don't have access to that diagram. So clearly there was information that Moses was given that we don't have access to. There was more to the revelation than simply what we read in our five books of Moses. Genesis 17 describes circumcision. God said to Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore you and your seed after you and their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. What exactly is Abraham supposed to do? Cut off his earlobe, cut off the tip of his nose, hit the tip of his toes. There's no explanation in the Bible as to what a circumcision is. On the bottom of the page, another dietary law, I have here for you the text that is actually written in a Torah scroll. It says, Lo tivashel gedi bechalev or chalav imo. As you can see, the text of the Bible did not come with punctuation, with, with uh, dots that explain how the words are to be pronounced. So this Hebrew word can be pronounced chalav, milk, or chalev, fat. So we're being told here not to cook a kid, lo tivashel gedi, do not cook a kid in the milk of its mother, becholavimo, or in the fat of its mother, becholavimo. Again, we wouldn't know what to do if all we had was a written text. Deuteronomy chapter 24, the next page. Here the Torah describes 
how a couple gets divorced. There's a description here of how you get divorced. So a couple is married and they get divorced and we're told that after a divorce takes place, a woman is allowed to remarry. A woman is allowed to remarry. But the Bible says that after she remarries, she can no longer then go back and remarry her first husband. So if a woman gets married and divorced and then remarries someone else and the second husband dies or divorces her, she is not allowed to marry her first husband. So a problem here in the Bible becomes, how do you get married? What constitutes a marriage? Shaking hands, giving a ring, giving money. So the Bible here presumes that there's a way of getting married such that if she does this act of marriage with a second man, she can no longer go back and remarry her first husband. So what does a couple need to do to get married? The Bible doesn't spell it out. Exodus chapter 31. Speak to the children of Israel saying, Verily, that's a good Hebrew word, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep. So the Bible says here to keep the Shabbat, observe the Sabbath. By the way, it's repeated dozens of times in the Bible. For the Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that does sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath therefore for it's a holy to you. Everyone that defiles it shall surely be put to death. For whosoever does any work on the Sabbath, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Now this is a very heavy passage. It says twice that there's a death penalty for violating the Sabbath, and it says not just will be put to death, but your soul will be cut off from among the people. So the problem here becomes very, very grave. If you were to read the Bible, you'd get the message very loud and clear here that the Sabbath is a very heavy law, and the consequences for violating it are very serious. So any person that takes this seriously would say, okay, but how do I keep the Sabbath? What do I avoid doing? It says here, not to do any manner of work. Well, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean that I don't punch a time clock and go to my job on Sabbath? Does it mean I can't do any work in the sense of physics? If you had a high school physics class or a college physics class, work in physics is any force moved over a distance. So in physics, picking up a book and moving it is work because I've moved, a force has gone through a distance. Does it mean that people who don't have jobs don't have to keep the Sabbath? says don't don't work on Sabbath. So if you're unemployed, then there's no Sabbath for you. Or maybe if you're at home watching kids, there's no Sabbath for you. Does the Sabbath only apply to people who have a paid job? And it says that they don't have to work on Sabbath. So what does the Bible mean when it says that you have to keep the Sabbath and not do any work? What specifically must you avoid doing? What if you happen to enjoy gardening? So you're gardening on the Sabbath and the Jewish police come and say, hey, you're violating the Sabbath, we're going to kill you. You go by and enjoy gardening. It's a great. I, I, I think it's great fun. It's not work for me. So, again, is this something which is subjective? Does a person get to choose for themselves what is work, what is not work? That would be a pretty sticky situation in a court case because there would be no objective criterion by which to, to judge someone if they were working. So here is a good example of the Bible giving a law which is very, very vague. Exodus 16, again, speaks about the Sabbath, but it says something very strange. It says in Exodus 16, verse 29, that on the Sabbath day, every man has to abide in his place. So is that saying that as soon as the bell rings and the Shabbat begins, you've got to freeze, that you can't move anymore? 
Does that mean you have to, if you're sitting down in a chair, you can't leave that chair for the next 25 hours? Does it mean you can't leave your house? By the way, the Sadducees, the Jewish Sadducees, who did not have an oral Torah, they did not believe in the reality of an oral Torah, who took the Bible literally, didn't leave their homes on Shabbat. And when the Bible says, for example, Lo don't kindle a fire in any of your dwelling places on Shabbat. They took that literally too. They sat in the dark. They didn't have hot food. So again, what is the ruling of the Bible? Here in Numbers 15, the Bible says that God spoke to Moses saying, tell the children of Israel they shall make fringes in the corners of their garments. Well, how do you do that? What's a fringe? What would you make when it says to make a fringe? They're actually not just these examples. If you go through the Torah, every single page of the Torah, every single paragraph is replete with many, many such questions. You would not know what to do from reading the Bible. So the implication here, especially in a passage like Deuteronomy 12, is that God did explain to Moses how we are to keep the laws. When God says to take the fruit of a beautiful tree, God told Moses what a beautiful tree is. It's a citron tree. When God said, don't do any work on the Sabbath, he explained precisely what of the 39 categories of labor we're not supposed to engage in. When it says to get circumcised, they were told what that precisely meant. When it says that we're not allowed to leave our place on the Sabbath, it explains it's not staying put in the position you're in at the commencement of Shabbat. It means you can't travel a certain distance outside of your homes on Shabbat. But every single law in the Bible was explained meticulously by God. Otherwise, the entire Bible is meaningless. And we don't begin our, with our premise. We don't begin with the assumption that the Bible was meaningless. We begin by the assumption that it was meaningful. God thought these laws were important. And God wouldn't give us a transmission, a Torah, which was inadequate. So every single law that is inadequate in the written text is explained very carefully in the oral tradition. Next page, a number of just not textual arguments, but arguments from reason. Top of the page is a piece from Talmud Shabbat, from the Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Shabbat, which has an interesting story. A rabbi's taught, a certain heathen once came before Shammai, Shammai was a great rabbi, and asked him, how many Torahs do you have? Two, Shammai replied, the written Torah and the oral Torah. Well, I believe you with respect to the written Torah, but not with respect to the oral Torah. Now make me a proselyte, convert me on condition that you teach me only the written Torah. So Shammai scolded him and repulsed him in anger. He said, get out of here, You're, you know, I can't take you seriously. When he went before Hillel, Hillel was the colleague of Shammai, Hillel accepted him as a convert. Hillel said, fine, you want to learn to be a convert? We'll go through the process. On the first day, he taught him Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalad. He began teaching this would-be convert the alphabet. And he showed him, this is the first letter, it's Aleph. This is the second letter, Bet, it's pronounced like a B. Third letter is Gimel, like a G, etc., the following day, he reversed them to him. So the next day, this guy comes back for a second lesson, and Hillel said, okay, that first letter there, it sounds like a D. That second letter, that sounds like a B, a C. So all the letters that he told him the previous day, he reversed. But yesterday, you did not teach them to me in that way, he protested. So Hillel said, must you then not rely upon me? 
then rely upon me with respect to the oral Torah as well. What this teaching is, what this is teaching us is something very simple. There is really no such thing in any part of life where there is a lack of oral transmission, of oral tradition. Any legal system especially has a rich uh, oral tradition that has to explain the written text. So here we see very clearly that it's impossible to transmit simply a written text without an explanation of what it means. On the top of the page you have a verse from Leviticus chapter 26, verse 46. I'm sorry for the small writing. But it says, What did God give Moses at Mount Sinai? Chukim or laws or statutes in this translation, mishpatim or ordinances, and Torot is plural for the word Torah. So here we see that there were two Torahs at least given at Mount Sinai. If you go right underneath that, Anyone here who's seen the Jewish science of gematria may appreciate the following idea. The word Torah in Hebrew, on the right-hand side, Torah is spelled Tuf, Vav, Resh, He, and each of those letters has a numerical equivalent. Tuf is 400, Vav is 6, Resh is 200, He is 5. The letters in Torah add up to 611. If you take the two words Baal Peh, oral, and Bektav, written, those are the two Torahs that we have, so the letters in Baal Peh, oral, add up to 187. The letters in the word Biktav, written, add up to 424. So interestingly, the words Biktav, oral, and Bik, I'm sorry, Baal Peh, oral, and Biktav, written, add up to 611, which is Torah. So our Torah is composed of both concepts, both elements. There's a paragraph on the left-hand side here, which we're not going to read, but I'll, have you, I'll ask you to read it at home which gives another logical reason for why there's an oral tradition, an oral Torah. What it says here is that without an oral Torah, the Jewish people are subject to spiritual larceny. It would be possible for any group of people to take our Torah and say, oh, we're the real Jews. We have the Torah. We're reading it. We're interpreting it. And we say that we're living by the Torah properly, which actually is what happened in terms of Christianity. Christians took our Torah and claimed to be the true Jews. That would only be possible if there was no such thing as an oral tradition. So if all we had was a written Bible, then it's possible for any other group to purloin the Torah and claim to be the true teachers. The fact of the matter is that we as a Jewish people have a key, a secret key, for unlocking the Jewish scriptures, the Jewish Bible. That's the oral traditions. That's not public domain. It's not public access. You need to get that from a teacher. If anyone in here is study Eastern traditions, for example, and the Eastern traditions as well, you can't just walk off the street and get the secret knowledge. You have to go to a master, you have to be deemed worthy. It's not passed out publicly. The written text of our Bible, you can pull off of a library shelf. That's equal access. That's open to the public. But the oral Torah is something which only is accessible to people who are part of the system. So it becomes a mechanism to prevent people from ripping off the Jewish traditions. We have examples in on the page here, the book of Nehemiah chapter 13, the book of Ezra chapter 10, the book of Jeremiah chapter 17. We don't have time tonight. But examples where the prophets speak about laws that were observed that were not found in the Old Testament, in the five books of Moses. So you see throughout the prophets, there are examples of laws which were extant, but were not recorded in the five books of Moses. 
They must have been given by God to Moses, but not recorded in the Bible itself. One last point. The Jewish Bible has an important mechanism for determining questions of doubt. In any legal system, you're bound to have situations which are not clear. So God gives the Bible to the Jewish people, and then in the future, at some point, there's a lack of clarity, how to apply a certain law, what a law in a new, circumstan- new circumstance is. The Jews are, ab- are bound to come to a situation where they won't know how to apply the Torah. So the question is, what do we do at that point? We're now living a Torah life, we're living according to the Torah, and we have a big problem. So what are we to do when we have a question? So there are two possibilities. One possibility is, okay, we're stuck, what do we do? So Christians might say, well, if you have a question, you pray to God, and God will tell you the answer. That actually is what most Christians would say. If you ask Christians today, uh, evangelical Christians, what they do to understand the Bible when it's not clear, they'll tell you they pray about it. Oftentimes when we ask Christians a question, it's very hard. When I ask a question to a Christian I'm counseling, that's very, very hard. They'll say, that's a good question. I have to pray about that. The Bible, though, God does not tell us to do that. God never says when you're in doubt and you have a question, pray to me and I'll send you a telegram from heaven giving you the answer. That would have been very easy for God to say. God could have told us, look, here's a no-fault, no-problem situation. You have a lifetime guarantee on the Bible. Anytime there's a problem, just pray to me. I'll clarify it to you immediately. God doesn't say that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says the following. If there arise a matter too hard for you in judgment between blood and blood, which means a capital case, between plea and plea, civil law, between stroke and stroke, damages, between matters of controversy within your gates, any kind of question that comes up, then you shall arise and get thee to the place which the Lord thy God has chosen, and you shall come unto the priests and the Levites and unto the judge that will be in those days and inquire, and they shall show you the sentence of judgment, and you shall do according to the sentence which they shall, which they of that place of the Lord, which the Lord shall choose, show you, and you shall observe to do according to all that they inform you according to the sentence of the law which they shall teach you, and according to the judgment which they shall tell you, you shall do. You shall not decline from the sentence which they shall show you to the right hand nor to the left hand. So why do we observe Hanukkah, for example? Here's the good, good case. There's a great miracle that happens to the Jewish people, and now there's a question. Do we make a new holiday? Do we commemorate this miracle by some religious observance? So they don't say to God, they don't go to God and say, God, should we make a holiday called Hanukkah? They take it up in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and the Sanhedrin says, yes, this miracle warrants some kind of a celebration. That's why we celebrate Hanukkah, because God gave the sages, the Supreme Court, the authority to rule in cases of questionable situations. Now, in the New Testament, this is a very interesting corroboration, Jesus says the exact same thing. In Matthew 23, Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they bid you to observe, that you shall observe and do. So Jesus tells his disciples, whatever the Pharisees teach, you have to follow. Then Jesus throws in a little slap and says, but do not do after their works, for they say and do not do. Meaning Jesus says to them, don't follow the example of these Pharisees because they don't practice what they preach. So they won't follow through on what their declarations are. So he says you shouldn't watch 
how they behave. But what Jesus is saying here is their declarations, their teachings are authoritative. They sit in the seat of Moses. Therefore, whatever they teach you, you must follow and observe. Not that we need Jesus' haskama here. We don't need his uh, approbation that the rabbis have this authority, but clearly he's reflecting what it says in Deuteronomy 17. We'll have occasion to come back to this discussion later on tonight, but just for the time being, what I wanted to demonstrate was that this question of the oral law is very central in terms of Christianity versus Judaism. Now, we're going to continue with the main topic for tonight, which is the Torah itself. We're going to see tonight, this is the, just steal my thunder and give you the, the bottom line. The basic premise of tonight's class is that the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, essentially is a book of instructions. The Bible is a book of instructions telling Jewish people how to live. And that's the central core of the Jewish Bible. What the New Testament does, what Christianity does, is to take all of those laws and throw them out the window. That's a basic difference between Christianity and Judaism. And we're going to look at tonight this whole question of the commandments, the Torah, the mitzvot in, in the Bible, and get an appreciation of how different we are from Christianity. Let's begin by the question of how did we as a Jewish people become the chosen people? What was the element that led God to choose, for example, Abraham? Why was Abraham chosen to be the first Jew? So we have here in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, a fascinating passage, because this is the passage that Christians use to explain why Abraham became the first Jew. Here we're told that Abraham didn't have any children, and God promises him that he'll have children someday. And Abraham is very doubtful. He's an old man. In verse 5, God brought him forth and said, Look now toward heaven and see the stars, Abraham. If you're able to number them, and he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. God says to Abraham that your children will be as many as the stars in the sky. That's an incredible promise to a man who's in his 90s. And it says in verse 6 that he believed in the Lord, Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So here the Bible seems to be saying that because Abraham believed God, God considered this to be a righteous act, righteousness. Christians will claim that this is the hallmark of what a Jew is, that Abraham was stamped a Jew because of his faith in God. And ultimately, that's what makes anyone into a Jew. Christians today, if you understand Christian theology, have a paradigm of the olive tree. Christians say that the Jewish people are like an olive tree. And you have the natural branches, and you have the grafted-in branches. And what Christians say is that Jewish people, born of Jewish parents, are the natural branches of the olive tree. But Christians become grafted into the olive tree through having belief, having faith. That's what makes you a Jew. That's why Christians will tell you they are spiritually Jews. They believe that they are spiritually Jews because they're fulfilling the legacy here of Abraham. Let's, let's look at this passage for a few minutes. First of all, when it says here that Abraham believed in the Lord, in verse 6, 
Obviously, it doesn't mean that Abraham all of a sudden believes in God, that before this story he didn't believe in God and now Abraham believes there's a God in the world. Abraham had been believing in God since the beginning of the story of Abraham, back in Genesis, I think, chapter 11. So what it means here is not that Abraham believed that God existed, but Abraham trusted God's promise, that God just promised him he'd have children so Abraham believed, not believed in the Lord, but believed the Lord. Abraham trusted God. And because he trusted this promise, God counted this to him as righteousness. So we're going to look at this from two different angles. First of all, is this trust of Abraham his most dynamic feature? Was Abraham, we know that he was a man of, of belief, a man of great faith, a man of trust, but is this... Could we possibly, reading the Bible, say, you know what? This is where Abraham, this is the suit that Abraham shined in. So let's look at a few verses right after this. In verse 7, God says to him, I am the Lord that brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. So God says, Abraham, not only are you going to have a lot of children, I'm giving you the land of Israel to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? How do I know that I'm going to get it? So right now he starts questioning God. One verse before he accepts the promise, he doesn't question it. Here God promises and not children but the land and he says, well, how do I know I'm going to get the land? The Talmud says, interestingly enough, because he questioned God here, he says, how will I know? So the Talmud says that he was punished with this. God said to him, you will surely know that your children will go down for 400 years to be strangers in a strange land. Because he had this lack of faith at this point, God punished him with the same words. He says, how shall I know? And God later says, you shall surely know that your children will be strangers in a strange land. That's one example of where Abraham doesn't shine 100% in this area of trusting God. Then in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham that Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her Sarah. You'll not call her name Sarah anymore, but Sarah shall be your name. And I will bless her and give you give you a son also of her. I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. This is when God first promises Abraham a son, and Abraham says, "Praise God, I'm going to have a son." No, look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed, and said in his heart, "Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old?" And shall Sarah, who is 19 years old, bear? So when God makes promises to Abraham in the Bible, he doesn't just simply say, I believe, I believe, no problem. Abraham is a man who's constantly questioning God. So does the Bible ever say, and this is an important piece now, does the Bible ever say that Abraham was chosen to be the progenitor of the Jewish people because of his belief? Does God ever say that? That he was chosen because of his belief? The New, the New Testament asserts that. The New Testament asserts that he was chosen because of his belief. Why? Because here it seems to say, in Genesis 15, verse 6, that because he believed in God, God counted that to him as righteousness. That the belief was counted as righteousness. So does the Bible ever describe any other things that could be accounted as righteousness? Look on the bottom of the column, Deuteronomy 24. In any case that you shall deliver him the pledge again when, he, when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless thee. So here it's a case where a person takes collateral for a loan and then returns the collateral to a person before the, the sun goes down. 
So the Bible here says that if you return the collateral to the borrower, it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord your God. Here the Bible considers restoring the pledge to the person who borrowed money, that's considered righteousness. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it shall be our righteousness if what? If we observe to do all of these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So that, the Bible says, is considered righteousness. Top of the next column, Psalm 106. Then stood up Pinchas and executed judgment, and so the plague was stayed. What's going on here? This is referring to an incident in the book of Numbers where there was a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman fornicating in public. The Bible says that when this was going on, a great plague broke out among the Jewish people, and this Pinchas took up a spear and shishkebabbed these two people that were copulating in public. He didn't run around saying, I believe, I believe in the Lord. He picked up a spear and he killed them. And in verse 30, 31 here, it says, And that was counted unto him for righteousness unto all generations forevermore. His act of zealousness was considered righteousness for all generations. So we have four examples in the Bible, four examples where something God considers to be righteousness. One of them is where Abraham believes, but all the other cases are examples where people follow the laws of God, where they behave according to the will of God. So it's not so simple to make the Christian assumption that what makes someone righteous is having belief, is having faith. What does the Bible actually say about why Abraham was chosen? You see, the Bible is very clear. The Torah spells out precisely why Abraham was chosen. Genesis chapter 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Here we're being told Abraham is going to become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in him. Why? Why will he become a great nation? Verse 19. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him that they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So he doesn't say that Abraham was chosen because he'll tell his children to believe. He's chosen because he will get his children to live properly, to keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment. Genesis 22 Verse 18, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. And finally, Genesis 26, the clearest passage. And I will make your seed to multiply as the stars of heaven and will give unto your seed all these countries. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Here God is speaking to Isaac. Why? Why is Isaac going to be the next progenitor of the Jewish people? Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So every single reference in Genesis to Abraham being the chosen person that will be the progenitor of the Jewish people never identifies him as such because he has faith in God. It always identifies him as such because he will properly live. He follows the will of God. Now later on in the Bible, when the Torah tells us about the Jewish people, why we're the chosen people, the same message is given. If you look in the middle of the page, Exodus 19. This is right before the Torah is given at Mount Sinai. Now, therefore, if you, the Jewish people, will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all of the earth is mine. 
and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak unto the children of Israel. So the Jewish people as the chosen people are such, not because we believed in God, but because we are going to keep God's laws and follow his commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is verse 1, by the way. And it shall come to pass, if you will hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. Then in verse 9, the Lord shall establish you and holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto you, if you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Jeremiah chapter 7. Again, this is a constant refrain in the Tanakh, that we are chosen on the basis of our observance of the Torah. Jeremiah 7, verse 23. But this thing commanded I them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk you in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Psalm 147. He has showed, this is verse 19 and 20, He has showed his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. One of the things I'll just share with you that many Christians have asked is, how could God have one set of rules for the Jewish people and one set of rules for the rest of the world? Christians are often bothered by the unequalness, the un, uh, the fact that we're not homogeneous. They have a difficult time understanding that people can be treated differently by God. And they refuse to acknowledge that. To them, it's not possible that God would treat people differently. That the Jewish people have to keep the Torah and others not. So here are verse, verses 19 and 20 in Psalm 147 say specifically this that God showed his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. So God did give his Torah just to the Jews, to no other people. One final thought here. We looked at a verse in Genesis chapter 22. This is the famous story of God telling Abraham to take his only son and to sacrifice him to bring him to the top of Mount Moriah as a sacrifice. It's a very terrible, very difficult story. And Abraham goes through with this. He brings Isaac up to the altar. And finally, as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, the angel says in verse 12, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's very easy for Abraham to run around saying, I believe, I believe. Abraham is not going to get away so easily. God does not accept Abraham simply verbalizing his belief. God says, now I finally know that you really fear me and believe in me. Why? Because you're willing to even sacrifice your son for me. Now, in the New Testament, the book of James, is not one of the most popular books in the New Testament. James was allegedly the brother of Jesus. So here's a very famous passage from the book of James. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, by works, meaning by actions, when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, 
and by works was faith made perfect. Meaning it's not enough just to have faith and to believe. You have to actually follow through. You have to live. That's what it says in the prophets, that the righteous shall live by his faith. You've got to live by your faith, not just have faith in your mouth and in your heart. You've got to actually live your faith in actions, in your life. That's what James here says. And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So now the fact that Abraham was called righteous for having faith in God was finally fulfilled when he was willing to act on his faith. In verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, Martin Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation, wanted to expunge the book of James from the New Testament. Martin Luther felt that the book of James was not consistent with Christian theology because according to Christian theology, according to Protestant theology, you were saved only by your faith. Your works are irrelevant. That's been the main critique of Judaism by Christianity. That only thing that will get you into heaven is belief. So this passage in the book of James seems to be out of sorts with that basic Christian tenet, and that's why Martin Luther felt the book of James had to be eradicated from the New Testament. Okay. Moving on. The commandments in the Torah. So again, the basic issue tonight is, are the Torah commandments commandments that are to be forever or only temporary? Did God give the commandments in the Torah to the Jewish people for a limited amount of time, or are they given eternally? On the left-hand side of the sheet here are a number of commandments, specific commandments, where the Bible says they are to be observed forever, eternally, throughout your generations. Genesis 17, the covenant of circumcision. God says, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with thy money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Not a few hundred years, everlasting. Exodus 12. This is talking about the Passover festival. Verses 14 and 17. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an ordinance forever. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in, the, in your generations by an ordinance forever. Exodus 31, speaking about the Sabbath. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel, how long? Forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Leviticus chapter 3. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings, that ye eat neither fat nor blood. So the prohibition against consuming fat and blood was not for a hundred years or a thousand years. It says for a perpetual statute. Leviticus 23 speaks about the Day of Atonement. And it says that we're not allowed to work on the Day of Atonement and we have to afflict our souls. And how often does this go on? In verse 31, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. The same thing in Leviticus 23 with the Feast of Tabernacles. In verse 41, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall keep it in the seventh month. 
The book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 38, speaks about making tzitzit, ritual fringes in the corners of, corners of garments. And it says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they shall make fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations. Okay. Second column speaks about commandments in general. Commandments in general. Deuteronomy chapter 4. You shall keep therefore his statutes and his commandments, which I command you this day. You have to keep the commandments, that it may go well with thee and with thy children after you, that you may prolong thy days upon the earth for which the Lord your God has given you forever. So we keep the commandments all the days that we live upon the earth, which is forever. Deuteronomy 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments always. Deuteronomy 12, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall observe to do in the land which the Lord your God, which, which, which the Lord God of thy fathers gives you to possess it all the days that you live upon the earth. That's a very long time. Second Kings chapter 17. Verse 37, And the statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forevermore, and you shall not fear other gods. Psalm 111, the works, this is verses 7 through 10, The works of his hands are verity, that's truthfulness and judgment. All his commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He sent redemption unto his people. He has commanded his covenant forever Holy and revered is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The last prophet in the Hebrew Bible, the last utterance of prophecy in the Jewish Bible is the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 4. In the Jewish Bible, it's chapter 3, verse 22. The very last thing that the prophet tells the Jewish people, the closure of the Bible Remember the law of Moses, my servant. He could have said, you know, like this is the last, the finale of the Bible. He could say, look forward to the Messiah who will abolish the law. Look to the blood of the Redeemer. He could have given a nice Christian conclusion to the Bible. No. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Choreb for all Israel with statutes and judgments. One of the things that Christians will say is, I've had this said to me hundreds of times, Michael, when it says here to keep the laws forever, it doesn't really mean forever. It says forever, right? It says forever, eternally, throughout your generations. It doesn't really mean that. It doesn't mean forever. So how do you answer that kind of a statement? How do you answer that kind of assertion? So what I normally ask the Christian at that point is, okay, so you're saying that when the Bible tells us that the commandments are to be observed forever, eternally, throughout our generations, it says unto a thousand generations, so you're claiming that that doesn't mean forever. So I simply ask them, well, how would you have written it so that it would be clearly forever? And if you think that God wasn't clear here and God didn't convey the idea of being forever, how would you have improved upon this? and made it clear that when someone finally read it, they would say, oh, that means forever. Would you write that you have to keep the law of the commandments forever, eternally, throughout generations? And I'm not kidding. I mean, what would you what you have to say to improve upon what the Bible said? It seems as if God went out of his way to make it painfully clear that these things must be kept forever. 
So for Christians to simply say, well, it doesn't mean forever, fine. It, it, but our, our presumption is that God has made it very clear here that the laws are to be observed forever. And if it wasn't to be kept forever, God probably would have avoided words like forever and eternally and would have said, for the time being, you'll keep these laws for now. Right? So I think that the Christians have a tremendous uh, difficulty with this kind of a passage, these passages. The next page is even more important. The Torah commandments are qualitative evaluation. How do we view the commandments of the Bible? How do we view the Torah? Are the commandments good? Are they worthwhile? Are they meaningful? Do we enjoy them? Are they pleasant? Do we look forward to them? Or are they a pain in the neck? Are they awful? Are they horrible? Are they the worst thing in the world? Is it the biggest curse that God ever gave us? So that's a very important question. How do we view the commandments of the Bible? So we're going to see that the Jewish Bible has a very clear evaluation of the commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. Behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments. This is Moses speaking. I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do so in the land where you go to possess it. Keep, therefore, and do them. Moses admonishes the Jewish people to observe the commandments. For they are your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these laws and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great who has God so close unto them as, our, as the Lord our God is in all the things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that has laws and statutes so righteous as all of this law which I have set before you this day? Now clearly this has not happened yet. This is a prophecy which has not yet happened. The world has never admired the Jewish people for keeping the commandments. The world usually mocks us. And they've never respected the Jewish people for observing the Torah laws. But what the Bible here in Deuteronomy is saying is that ultimately, don't forget this is a theme that we've discussed before. Isaiah 53, Zechariah 8.23, Jeremiah 16. We saw many passages in the Bible where we're told that at the end of days, the nations of the world are going to come and say, you know what, the Jews were right and we were wrong. We made fun of the Jews throughout the history of keeping the Torah. The Bible here is saying they will come to us and say, you know what, your laws are the most brilliant, righteous laws in the world. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 13. You came down also upon Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The Torah is good, is right, is appropriate. Look at Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, one of the most amazing books in the Bible, Kohelet. It's like a Jewish Siddhartha. He goes through life, he experiments, he tries different things. It's a book where it seems to be very negative about life. Life is meaningless. Hevel Havolim. Is there any meaning to life? Any purpose to life? And you go through 12 chapters and it's not coming out very positively. And finally, at the very end of the book, this is the very, very end of the book of Kohelet, of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says the following. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. King James here interpolates the word duty, but in Hebrew it says, Kizek kol ha'adam, because fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole of man. That's what man is all about. From Psalm 19, 
one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. What does the Bible here say about the Torah, the commandments? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. The Torah is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much greater than fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by keeping them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them, of, and in keeping of them there is great reward. So here, King David is making it very clear that the Torah, the commandments, are wonderful. They're great. The third column, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the largest, the biggest chapter in the entire Bible. 176 verses. Every single verse in this psalm is a love song to the Torah and a love song to the keeping of the commandments. I only have here a few of them printed. I'll just read a number of them. Verse 35. Make me to go in the path of your commandments, for therein do I delight. Verse 47. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I have loved. Verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I should have then perished in my affliction. David says it's the only thing that's kept them alive is God's Torah. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. Verse 127, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Verses 155, Salvation is far from the wicked, for they seek not your statutes. That's what, that's what Christianity is all about, salvation. But if you don't seek after God's commandments, it's going to be far from you. Verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Verse 166. Lord, I have hoped for thy salvation. How do you get God's salvation? By I have done your commandments. Finally, Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keeps the law, happy is he. So the basic bottom line here is the Torah is wonderful, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. People delight in it. It's the greatest thing in the world. Keep that in mind. We will see the contrast in the New Testament. Christianity says that, true, the Torah was something which was required of Jews. Christianity will say that until the death of Jesus, the Jews had to keep the Torah. But once the Messiah died, once the Messiah was killed, the Torah is no longer required. That's the Christian argument. Once the Messiah comes, we no longer have to observe the Torah. So here's the simple question. What does the Bible say, what does the Torah say about the Messiah coming? Does the Bible say that when the Messiah comes, we won't have to keep the Torah? We won't be keeping the Torah? Simple question. So all we need to do is go back to the passage we studied already and see what the Bible says about the Messianic age. A passage in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 24, Messianic prophecy. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. So the Bible here isn't saying that when the Messiah comes, we won't keep the Torah. It's saying the opposite. When the Messiah comes, we will keep the Torah. Ezekiel chapter 44 is an entire chapter describing the laws of the third temple. It's describing here what's going to happen when the third temple is rebuilt in the Messianic age. In verse 9 it says, Thus says the Lord God, 
no stranger uncircumcised in heart nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary. Interesting. The New Testament constantly says that the only circumcision that's important is that your heart should be circumcised. Here, the Bible says about the Messianic age that your flesh needs to be circumcised as well. It's not enough to say it's in my heart. It's going to have to be in your flesh as well. Verses 23 and 24. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the profane and cause them to discern between unclean and clean. And in controversy they shall stand in judgment and they shall judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all of my assemblies and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. This is a messianic prophecy. And it's speaking about the Jews keeping all the laws of the Torah and observing the Sabbath, etc. Isaiah chapter 2 a messianic prophecy we've studied. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to that mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he shall teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The Bible could have said here, this is a messianic prophecy, out of Zion shall go forth the blood of the Messiah. Out of Zion shall go forth, you know, the faith and the redemption of the Lamb of God. It doesn't say anything about Christianity. It's telling you here, in the messianic age, out of Zion will go forth the law. Now, just a side point, and this is a point that we've discussed before, but we'll re- review for two minutes. And this is an empirical issue. This is not an issue that we'll see is simply looking at verses in the Bible. We're going to see something which can be shown empirically. The covenant that God made was with whom? The covenant that God makes in the Jewish Bible is a covenant where God says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That's the covenant. God has a relationship with the Jewish people and God says that he will preserve us as the Jewish people. We shall be preserved. But who does God make this covenant with? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 to 12. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, which keeps the covenant and mercy. So God keeps his covenant. What is God's part of the covenant? To keep kosher? To observe the Sabbath? No, God's part is to keep the Jewish people. God will keep his covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays them that hates him to his face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command you this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them that the Lord your God shall keep unto you the covenant and the mercy that he swore to his fathers. This is the deal that the Bible makes with the Jewish people. Same thing we find in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord your God will make you plenteous in every work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the fruit of thy cattle, in the fruit of thy land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you, the good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If you shall hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which you have written in the book of law, and if you will turn unto the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Same thing in Psalm 103, verse 17 and 18. 
the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto his children's children to such as keep his covenant to those that remember his commandments to do them. The historians tell us at the time of the first century, in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people numbered about 10% of the world. 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people were about 10% of the world. That's approximately 10 or 11 million people. If the numbers kept at a steady pace, we would be approximately 500 million minimally today. If we maintained our pace 2,000 years ago, about 12 million people, today we should be at least 500 million, 10% of the world. So what happened to all these Jews? There are about 14 million Jews in the world today. 14 million Jews, we should be at least 500 million. So we know that many Jews have been killed in history. That's one reason why we're not as big as we should be. But there's another reason why there aren't that many Jews here. And that is that many Jewish people in the course of our history have willingly, voluntarily jumped ship. That's why they're not around. We know today that if you are Jewish and you're sitting in this room, we know that none of your ancestors converted to Christianity or Islam. We know that. We know that if 2,000 years ago any of your ancestors became a Christian, you would not be sitting in the class tonight as a Jew. You'd be in a church thinking you were a Christian. So throughout Jewish history, people that voluntarily jump ship, their children do not continue to exist as Jews. So here we have some empirical evidence about the messianic movement of Jesus. If you go back 2,000 years ago, there were two major, there were other groups, and we can discuss them as well, two major groups as far as our course is concerned. There were, were Pharisaic, rabbinic Jews 2,000 years ago. These were the Jews that did not think Jesus was the Messiah. These were the Jews that observed the Torah, kept the commandments. And you had the, quote-unquote, Messianic Jews. These were the Jews that began to believe Jesus was the Messiah and began slowly dropping the observance of the Torah. So here's a very simple question. With which of these groups did God preserve the covenant? God tells us it's a covenant where he will preserve the Jewish people. So back then, 2,000 years ago, which group did God choose to preserve the covenant with? Which of these two groups continued to exist in history? So we know that within about 200 years of Jesus, all of his Jewish followers disappeared. And all you had was a growing movement of Gentile pagans. The rabbinic Jews, who did not believe in Jesus, who kept keeping the commandments, that's the group that has persisted to this day. So we see in history that the covenant God keeps. With whom? With those who fear God, who love him, and who keep the commandments. The followers of Jesus began to not keep the commandments, to worship idolatry. So we see that God will not keep the covenant with them, and it didn't happen. The covenant was not kept with them. They were not preserved as a distinct Jewish group. Let's get to the Christian perspective. What does the New Testament say about the commandments in the Torah? So I've mentioned before that it's widely regarded that Jesus himself was a Torah-observant Jew. It is widely regarded that Jesus himself was a Torah-observant Jew. I'm not going to try to prove that point tonight. I don't think it's very important for our course. You can certainly argue 
but at least the New Testament seems to concur with that perspective. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Not an antinomian speech from the mouth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the king, into the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, not everyone that says, going around, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, that person won't necessarily go to heaven. But he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. You want to go to heaven? Keep the commandments of the Father in heaven. Another proof of the same exact case. Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why call thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. And if you will enter into heaven, keep the commandments. You want to do, go into heaven? Keep the Torah. Luke 16, verse 17. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass than for one tittle of the law to fall. That's one little tiny dot of the law to fall. Luke 23. And the women, this is at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus, where after he's been crucified. The women also which came with him from the Galil followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. They came to see him in the tomb. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. They observed the Sabbath according to the Torah. So what changed in Christianity? So the, the chief culprit is Paul of Tarsus. Paul, who became the missionary to convert the non-Jewish world, Paul himself only, I shouldn't say only, Paul primarily preached to the non-Jews, ultimately was the one that transformed Christianity from a Jewish messianic movement to a pagan idolatry where the Torah was no longer practiced. Look what happens in Acts 21, verses 19 to 21. When he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Paul was bragging about what God had done to all the Gentiles that he converted. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of you. Here, who's speaking to Paul? These are the Jerusalem, these are the Jerusalem church. These are James and Peter. These are the actual Jewish disciples of Jesus. So Paul's bragging about everything he's done about the, with the non-Jews throughout the world. And the, the Jerusalem church says, And these Jews who are zealous to keep the Torah, they are informed of you, that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. So here the church in Jerusalem says, you know what, Paul, we've heard about your activities, and we've heard that you've been teaching Jewish people in the countries across the world not to keep the Torah anymore. Anyway, there's a bit of a commotion here in a trial. In verse 27, the story goes on. And then when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, this is Paul, 
They stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. They wanted to kill Paul. Because he was so Paul cried out, Men of Israel, help! I'm sorry, the people cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law, against the law, and against this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and has polluted this holy place. So we see that Paul was the first person to begin trampling on the Torah. We see some of Paul's writings on the bottom of the page. Romans chapter 3. This is Paul writing. Therefore, by the deeds of the Torah shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ unto all and upon them that believe, for there is no difference. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Paul does not mince words here. He's clearly saying that it's no longer important or necessary to keep the Torah. Galatians chapter 2. You should know, by the way, the entire book of Galatians is one long diatribe against the keeping of the Torah. What happened in the New Testament was that Paul converted many people, and then he would go back to visit them later. And he saw that many people that he converted started keeping the Torah. And he would go back and yell at them and say, why are you going back and keeping this Torah? You'll see many times he yells at them. So Galatians 2. Knowing that man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept under the law. Before faith in the Messiah. Right? Before faith in the Messiah, we were kept under the law. Shut up! Unto the faith which would there afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster. Training wheels. That's what Paul's saying here. The Torah was simply training wheels until we got our real bicycle. To bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, he's entitled to his opinion. Paul says the Torah was simply a temporary measure to get the people to the, to the time when they could believe in Jesus. But did the Torah ever say that? Did the Torah ever say the laws are temporary until the Messiah comes? Torah didn't say that. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. So now the Torah is out the window. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians 2, verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Isn't that strange? The Torah, we're told was for the Jewish people, for their benefit, for their good. That's what the Bible kept on saying. It's for your benefit, it's for your good, it's for your benefit. And here Paul says that these were ordinances that were against us, which were contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21. We mentioned this verse previously. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. If a person was able to be a righteous person by keeping the Torah, Jesus died in vain. 
Top of the next column, Galatians chapter 4. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, again, here, Jesus, here Paul is speaking to the people he's converted. And he says, after you have now come to know God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereupon you desire again to be in bondage? That's how Paul speaks about the people who started keeping the Torah. He calls them the weak and beggarly elements. And he speaks about them as keeping you in bondage. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul speaks about the Torah as a ministry of death engraved in stone. How incredibly different than what David said in the book of Psalms. More beautiful than gold, sweeter than honey. Paul says they're a ministry of death engraved in stone. Hebrews chapter 7. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandments going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. It's amazing. Paul says the commandments are weak and unprofitable. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we draw near to God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your... An- That's the Bible. The futile ways inherited from your ancestors nor with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, etc. So much on the commandments and Torah from the book of the New Testament. Now, is there any basis in fact for Christians to say that the Old Testament Torah, the laws of the Torah, will be abolished? Is there any place in the Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible, where Christians can point and say, well, wait a minute, the Tanakh itself, the Jewish Bible itself said, the Torah will be done away with. Do they have any basis in the Torah for their idea? So the only reference they have, this is the only one, is Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to see something very amusing. We're going to see, like many other places we've seen, that not only does the text from the Bible not prove what the Christians think it proves, it proves the exact opposite. This actually happens many times. But they bring this passage from Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll read it together. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So Jeremiah is here speaking about a new covenant that God's going to make with the Jewish people. Excuse me. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Remember that refrain, that when I make this new covenant, I'll put the law in their inward parts and I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the Christian argument here is that Jeremiah is predicting a time when the Torah will be done away with. God will take the Torah and make a new Torah, a new covenant, and put the old Torah in our hearts, in our inward parts. And once it's inside, we won't have to keep it. That's the basis of the Christian argument. If you ask Christians, especially Jewish Christians, do you follow the Torah? They'll say, yeah, it's in my heart. I keep it in my heart. So a number of questions. 
Question number one. When it says here in Jeremiah that God will take the Torah and put it inside of us. This is verse 33. I will put my Torah in their inward parts. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says that God will put the Torah in our inward parts? Does it mean that when it's inside of us we won't have to keep it anymore? That we'll say, Passover, eating matzah? No, I got to keep the law in my heart. So how would you know what it means when it says that God will put the law in our hearts? What does it mean when it says that? So the simplest way of reading it is by looking at the passage itself. It says the old covenant you didn't keep. The old one you didn't keep. So I'm going to make a new covenant and I'm going to put it in your hearts. So presumably what it means to say that I'm going to put my law in your heart is that now you'll be faithful to keep the commandments. How do we know that this reading is correct? So we can go through the Bible. I actually found dozens and dozens of passages in the Bible where it speaks about having the Torah in your heart. And there it confirms what we just said. Look at Psalm 40, at the bottom of the page. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Why? Because thy law is within my heart. If the law is in my heart, then I will do the Torah. Look at Ezekiel 11. Basically the exact same prophecy as Jeremiah 31. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. That what? That they will walk in my statutes, keep my ordinances, and do them. And they will be my people, and I will be their God. The same refrain from Jeremiah. When we get a new heart, then we will keep the commandments, and God will be our God, we will be his people. Same thing in Ezekiel 36. A new heart also will I give to you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, you shall keep my judgments and do them. So having a transformed heart simply means that we will be faithful to keep the Torah. Same promises in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the Lord thy God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses upon your enemies and on them that hate you, which persecuted you, and you shall return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you this day. So when God circumcises our hearts, we will be all keeping the Torah. So the keeping of the commandments is based upon whether they're in our hearts. If you look at Jeremiah 24 and Jeremiah 32, you'll see also that this new covenant is tied up with the restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Israel when? In the Messianic age. One of the things we believe is that this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 is a messianic prophecy. We believe that it will happen, that when the Messiah comes, God will make a new covenant and put the Torah in our hearts and then we'll keep the Torah. Jeremiah 24 says, For I will set my eyes upon them for good and I will bring them again to this land. God will bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel and I will build them and not pull them down and I will plant them and not pluck them up. And I will give them a heart to know me that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart. So God will restore the Jewish people to the land of Israel at the same time when he turns their hearts to keep the Torah. Jeremiah 32, the same promise. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries where I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I'll cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That same refrain over and over again. 
and I will give them one heart and one way, and they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I would put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. For thus says the Lord, like as I have brought all this great evil upon this people, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. question here is very simple. Has a new covenant been made yet? The Christians claim that the new covenant was made with the, with the death of Jesus. The new covenant was made, and now we don't have to keep the commandments anymore. So number one, we saw that when the new covenant comes, we will keep the commandments. But number two, is it, a, is it possible to show that the new covenant hasn't happened yet? Very easily. Look at Jeremiah 31, 34. It says that when the new covenant is made that everyone in the world is going to believe in God. It says, They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, No, Lord, there'll be no more missionaries in the world. There'll be no more preachers. There'll be no one needing to tell people to believe in God because it says, For they will all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord. This is one of the messianic prophecies we've discussed in this class before, that one of the prophecies in the Bible is that in the messianic age, the entire world is going to believe in God. Clearly, this hasn't happened yet. So much for the New Covenant. One of the things that Christian missionaries claim is that it's impossible to keep the Torah. When Jewish people make the assertion that the Torah is important and the Torah can't be rejected, Christians say, that's nice and sweet, but it's impossible to keep the Torah. It's sort of an irrelevant argument because it's not the, the issue at hand. The issue at hand is, does God want us to keep the Torah? Now we're discussing whether or not it's too hard, not too hard, but Christians will say it's impossible. So let's delve into this question for a few minutes. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, there's an entire discussion about whether or not the Gentiles who come to Christianity will have to keep the commandments of the Torah. So if you look at Acts, chapter 15, verse 10, someone expresses the sentiment, Now therefore, why tempt you God to put, upon a, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? And here it's talking about the non-Jewish disciples. So why do you want to put a yoke upon these non-Jewish disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? It's impossible to keep the Torah. This is the assertion that Christian missionaries make. So, we go back to the Torah. Right? This is what Paul says in the New Testament. So what does God say in the Torah? Does God ever speak about whether it's impossible to keep the Torah, whether it's possible to keep the Torah? So look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 8. And you will return and obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you this day. And the Lord your God will make you plenteous in every work of your hands, in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, in the fruit of the land for good. For the Lord again will rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you will hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law and if you will turn unto the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. For this commandment which I command you this day it is not hidden from you neither is it far away. It's not in heaven that you should say who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who shall go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. No, the word is very near to you 
in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil, in that I command you this day to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God shall bless thee in the land where you go to possess it. So God here says that he's given us a choice between good and evil, between life and death. And he says that it will be good for us if we choose life. And choosing life is choosing to do the commandments. Is it too difficult to keep the commandments? He says here, no, it's not too difficult for us. It's not beyond the sea. It's not up in the heavens. He said it's close to us in our mouth and in our hearts that we can do it. So the Bible's pronouncement on this subject is very clear. Christians assert that the commandments are too difficult to keep. The Bible says specifically on this topic, they're not too difficult. Now watch what Paul does in the book of Romans. It'll blow your minds. Romans chapter 10. If you were paying attention to Deuteronomy 30, listen to what Paul does in Romans 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's saying that he prays that the Jewish people may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. It's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Righteousness. Listen carefully now. For Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law and says, The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness which comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near to you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So Paul is basing his entire drusha here, his sermon on Deuteronomy 30, and says that what we're learning from this chapter in Deuteronomy is that the ultimate expression of closeness to God is simply by having faith in Christ and not by keeping the commandments of the Bible, not in the righteousness that comes from the law. And he proves it by quoting liberally from Deuteronomy 30. Now, one thing that should be very clear is that he really does an incredible hatchet job on Deuteronomy 30. Because Deuteronomy 30, verse 14 said... The word is very near unto you in your mouth and in your heart that you can do it. And Paul conveniently leaves off those last few words in Romans 10 verse 8 and says, the word is near to you on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. He leaves the entire passage on your lips and on your heart simply saying, I believe. But Deuteronomy 30, if you leave the whole pas passage in context, is clearly speaking about not simply having faith in God, but observing his commandments. On the other side of the page, we just have simple examples of people who were able to keep the Torah. Again, Christians say it's impossible to keep the Torah. What does the Bible say in Deuteronomy? It is possible. And we have several examples. David says, King David in Psalm 18, God has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord 
and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him. I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, as the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands is his, in his eyesight. Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish